Hi, and welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network, where we bring culture to horticulture. You're listening to us on the Heritage Radio Network, where we're broadcasting from two repurposed shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, what you as listeners don't know is that there's a great garden on top of this container, which produces food for the amazing pizza and cuisine here at Roberta's. These containers house the Heritage Radio Network so that we can discuss all things food and plant related. Today's show is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we are the ladies and garden designers of Groundworks, Inc. We design, install, and maintain gardens throughout the New York area. And today, in the container, <laughs> we're going to talk about the visual arts of food and horticulture, that is, botanical painting. And we have um, great guests today, a longtime friend, Carol Wooden, a botanical painter and exhibition curate, uh, coordinator for the American Society of Botanical Artists, as well as Sue Frynathan, a botanical art dealer um, from Sue Frynathan Fine Works on Paper. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. Hello. Now, Alice has a little bit of a secret life she needs to disclose. To other, our than, other than the cold that I have right now, that's a secret life. <laughs> um, don't we have a sponsor, Whole Foods? Yes, that's right. Uh, Whole Foods is our sponsor. Um, and Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite has a story. So whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods... Um, Every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. Very nice. Whole Foods. Um, So a little bit of full disclosure here. I have kind of a second life other than designing and installing gardens with Carmen. Um, In my past life, and somewhat still current today, I've worked with Sue Fry Nathan very closely um, and Carol Wooden and helped curate botanical art exhibitions as director of exhibitions for the Horticultural Society of New York and currently as co-curator, along with Susan, of a contemporary botanical art show, which is on view at New York Botanic Garden, the Elisa and Isaac Sutton Collection of Botanicals. And the title of the exhibition is Environmental Expressions in Art. I just recently saw it, Sue. It looked amazing. Thank it you. It was really yeah. amazing. I finally, <laughs> I finally got out there to see it, and it, it was phenomenal. I mean, I'd seen it in bits and pieces. Right, You know, sure. over the years, I was getting, you know, getting to know Isaac and kind of going through his house, bringing plants through and stuff. But seeing it all together, was, and in its context, you know, at the Botanic Garden was just mind-blowing right but Carmen also um, has kind of a a history with botanical art as well because her husband is a painter and um, when I was at the Hort Society we had a a exhibition of his work it's more photorealism work but he had a show of orchids which were really beautiful Robin Selfridge so and then Carmen and I became fast friends um, when we were at the Hort Society because I was directing exhibitions and Carmen was um, working f- at the store, she was the manager of the store, so we would constantly be, you know, shuffling things around right and left. And our cubicles were and right our next cubicles, to each other. Right. But, but in order to, to make room for the exhibits. Yeah. So Carmen was always right there next to me as I was putting these shows together with the ASBA and with Sue Fry. So welcome, ladies, and we're going to shed some light on botanical art. It's not just pretty flower painting, is it? Let's talk for a bit about that. <laughs> um. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what botanical art is, I guess, yes, to start please. out. Yeah. And um, everybody kind of recognizes the form, I think. It's usually an isolated plant on the page. Uh-huh. It's um, 
very realistic. You have to capture the botanical details. Um, and sometimes people have groupings of plants. They can be naturalistic groupings or arranged groupings. But, um, you know, within the discipline of botanical art, there is a lot of room for an artist to make it their own thing. And um, that's what I like about it. You can move around in the genre a little bit, and you don't want to repeat the past. Artists today want to bring something new to the table. Right. They want to um, tie it into the world we live in. So um, from my viewpoint, I, you know, I try to be cognizant of the past, but I try to look ahead and look to today for my inspiration. Right. Well, most people have seen the probably the most famous are the Redoute roses, right? What is unique about your paintings when compared to an old master, let's say, of botanical art such as him? Well, I just love to hear my name in the same <laughs> sentence as Redoute. <laughs> Carol, what did Redoute? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if the Empress uh, were going to collect today, I think she would hire you, Carol. I have to tell you. <laughs> well, thank you. But, you know, as far as Redoute goes, you know, I, I think I have a, a similar interest in color and form. Um, he was really into color and form, but um, he was really uh, focused on pretty flowers almost exclusively. He did other things. He did a group of onions and alliums, too, but uh-huh. um, I'm not completely focused on prettiness, although I'm not afraid of prettiness. Uh-huh. So um, the main thing, though, is that our goals are different. I live in today's world, and he did not. Uh-huh. Um, what drives me is I want people to to look at these paintings and stop for a moment and kind of disconnect from the electronic world the mechanized world from their facebook right that's right and just be drawn into just the aesthetic beauty that that plants possess um the other thing that is that i'm thinking a lot about now is the place my paintings will hold in a world 500 years from now good so Uh i see that world is probably being less green yeah. Uh-huh. Less diverse, absolutely. And I think of uh, having a beautiful image of a past world that people can really be drawn into it in that time frame. So, who has influenced your painting style? Well, um, you know, I a lot of people were influenced by Margaret Mee. She was a botanical artist. I think she passed away about ten or fifteen years ago. Uh-huh. She worked in the Amazon, uh-huh. and I had been painting. Uh, upstate New York wildflowers and I found a book about her and realized this could be done and then um, I think so she started all she also had a really uh, strong environmental ethic uh-huh. and then um, something I've always loved is Netherlandish painting uh-huh. sure. and um, illuminated manuscripts mainly from say the 15th to the early 17th century uh-huh. and I like um, you know the Netherlandish paintings are paintings that are so detailed, and there are entire worlds in there, and you can just stand there and just study them for so long. And along with the manuscripts, there's a sacred quality about them. Uh-huh. But they're so rich and colorful. And um, I like to kind of push those aspects of my work, too. And then right now, my favorite artist would be Walton Ford. Um, he had a retrospective at, at the, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Museum, Museum. Yeah. a few years ago. Right. And I love the way he melds uh, kind of contemporary cultural messages within a natural history context. Audubon-esque. Uh-huh. Of course. Yeah. Right. Was his main reference was Audubon. Was Audubon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also, you paint on a, on a medium, vellum, that is also historically 
important. Tell us about that process and, and the medium itself. Speaking of manuscripts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know what vellum was. I became addicted to it after I went to uh, the UK, I think in the early 90s, to see to show some botanical artwork over there. And then I saw a couple of exhibitions uh-huh. of botanical art. And they were entirely, the, the work was entirely painted on vellum. And um, it's kind of, uh, you know, it goes back to the Renaissance. Right. So Describe to our audience, in case they don't know what it is, what physically vellum actually is. It's calf skin. Yes. C-A-L-F. Uh-huh. As an <laughs> animal. Right. <laughs> yeah. I had been, I'd done some drafting when I was younger, so I thought vellum was drafting vellum. For architecture, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, but the vellum itself, it's, it's warm and the color modulates in it. So, um, whereas when you're working on paper, it can be so white and antiseptic almost, you get a real technical feel to your work. Whereas with vellum... Um, there's a warmth, there's a little translucency, uh-huh. and so the work really glows. Right. And the surface is just beautifully, beautifully smooth. And um, I stretch it on panel and then shadow box them. So you're kind of looking into a box at a little, uh-huh. I look at it sort of like a little treasure box. Right. So tell us where, uh, where you actually do the painting and, and how do you pick your subject matter, Carol? Well, I I paint in my house. I have a studio in my house. Um, And usually when I find a subject, I I go to the plant. I can go to somebody's greenhouse. I go out in the field and work in the field. I do field studies. Um, And you've done some traveling. You were telling me earlier. Tell us a little bit about some of the traveling that you've done. Well, my my main area of focus has been, for many years, orchids. And uh-huh. I do other things besides orchids, but that's what I'm known for. And I've been working on a book called The Slipper Orchids of the Tropical Americas. Uh-huh. And I've done some traveling in Ecuador and Peru a few times to capture some of the slipper orchids that grow down there in the wild and that are really not available here in America. So you're carrying all of your art supplies with you, and there you are sort of plain air painting, so to speak, right? On site with an easel and, and your stretched vellum. Or do you do like no, sketches I, and or is I it take, notebooks? Uh, I take um, museum board and watercolors and I paint in the field standing and holding the paper in my hand. Okay. And uh, sometimes I sit. Uh-huh. But um, it's then I go back to the studio. So those are more studies for... Yeah, those right. are my studies that I work from later on. Uh-huh. Well, those, that must be some fun trips. It's fun. <laughs> Hats and insect it's a repellent. Great job. And, yeah. <laughs> so I assume that you went to art school, and you, how did you, how did that meld with becoming a botanical artist? I mean, why botanical art versus landscape painting, or you know, still, or still life or yeah. abstract? Well, I, you know, really was happenstance. I didn't plan it. Um, I just always like to be out in the natural world. And I had always, I had been an artist since I was a child, and I didn't go to art school. But um, I just started being just captivated by the wildflowers that were growing, and then those led me to wild orchids. And then it, it just kind of so spiraled out of control by then. Pure observation then. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible, because now so many people feel that they have to you know, go to the art school and be trained. And, you know, the fact that you just did it organically, 
you know, is, it's is pretty, remarkable. It's pretty astounding. My husband often says that he didn't learn much in art school. He really just learned. Come on, he learned how to draw the egg. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the Chuck Taylor and, tennis shoe and did the bad <laughs> self-portrait with the light you yeah. know but um <laughs> but he said he just by painting continuously you know just by just painting and observing you yeah. know that's where he really you know learned so let's talk for a second um, about the market of botanical art because Carol you in addition to being a painter yourself you're also curator for the American Society of Botanical Artists. And we're going to talk uh, with Sue a little bit about that, too, in just a minute. But let's talk about the market of botanical art. How, did, how do you sell your work? Well, um, I, I get a lot of commissions. Uh-huh. And so I work by commission. and I Who commissions you? Um, art collectors, uh-huh. mainly. And someone who's seen my work in an exhibition, and they want more. And, and they want you to document flowers that are in their garden? No, um, they usually want me to paint something that I would normally paint anyway. Okay. It's often orchids, or um, I've painted various other things, fruits, vegetables, flowers of other kinds. Uh-huh. Um, and I find that uh, with botanical artists, like many other art forms that, you kind of build your own clientele over time. Uh-huh. And when you start out, I never had trouble selling work, even at the beginning. Uh-huh. I didn't sell it for very much. And I think a lot of people start out that way and they build up um, as they, and they improve over time too. So, because um, you, your work is in museums and galleries now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do a little bragging. Tell us a little bit about some of the museums yeah. that you're at and the galleries. Um, well, and how did you come to them? Like, or how did they come to you? Just through smaller shows, and it's just kind of a, a word of mouth, so to speak. I guess, you know, uh, the botanical art world is, uh, it's pretty large now. There are 1,200 members of the American Society of Botanical Artists. So over the years, I've been in uh, quite a few books and publications uh-huh. and other exhibitions, and I've often had new galleries pick me up by coming to an exhibition that they see my work in. Right. Or um, the Shirley Sherwood collection has gotten me to be in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and the Marciano Library in Venice and in the Tokyo Art Museum. So yeah. she travels her collection around and... Um, Sue's in gonna, that way. Yeah, Sue's going to tell us. Actually, Sue, let's let's bring you in right now. Let's talk a little bit about the library collections. And well, let, let's let's go back a little bit earlier. Five minutes, seven minutes. History of botanical art. <laughs> yes, Sue that Nathan. Is such an impossible <laughs> task. I know it is, but you can do it, Sue. It is such an impossible task, but I'll I'll do my best to Monty Python. To, Monty yeah, I'll do my best to try and explain it in a fun way, so this way you can grab onto something that interests you. Um, you know, obviously, the earliest portrayals would have been in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Uh, in you know they would they would have appeared in temples and tombs and then you know in the tradition of botanical art lays claim basically in northern Europe Germany the Low Countries France and England uh-huh. uh, and then you know really it basically started with the uh, the uh, illustrated herbal you know the manuscript where right, sure. you would see the drawings of 
uh, the botanicals for medicinal purposes, for right. curative purposes. Right. You know, it became economic. Utility and, and economy. And, and right. economy. Uh, but it was really for medicinal purposes. And they, they were housed in hospitals and, you know, in communities to use them for a very long time until uh, the invention of, of the print of printmaking in, uh, of printing in Germany in, uh, by Gutenberg in the 15th century. So... Uh, you know, and then they started to print incunable herbals, you know, uh-huh. they, which which enabled many more people to look at the books and see what the, you know, the powers of the plant were, uh-huh. you know, for medicinal purposes and otherwise. And then, in, you know, obviously somebody like Durer in the 16th century who studied plant and flowers uh, from a scientific and painterly perspective, uh, you know, found that nature, uh, he could draw... Uh, that art was hidden in nature, and that he could draw it out. And what, what he could draw out, what he uh, he basically said, art is hidden in nature, and he who can draw it out possesses it. Exactly. You know. Right. So he was seeing the power of the plant so early on, and so, so as Leonardo da Vinci was with his scientific drawings. Right. right. And and they really saw the importance of nature within uh, within art. Uh-huh. You know, and and how it could play a role in the fine art as well, because he was also a painter and he was a mathematician and he right. was a lot, yeah. of, was a lot and, of people. And weren't they one of the first to draw from life too? A lot of the older herbals, they just copied and there was a lot of information lost about what the plant looked like. Isn't that true, Sue? That right. they just copied old, right? You know, versions? From the 60 AD version. Yeah. It was copied and copied and copied yeah. and a lot of those, uh, th- that information was lost yeah. over time. So, it, you know, Dura recaptured that and I think it really... S- it really brought to, to light sort of nature and the importance of it. And that was sort of the beginning of people looking at it and, and as art. And seeing it for its aesthetic value. Very much so. Right. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he was a painter, a printmaker, a mathematician, an engraver in Nuremberg. Uh-huh. And he utilized, you know, all, he was a Renaissance man and he utilized a lot of that information. And he felt nature was very important in conveying thought, uh, you know, th- thinking and teaching okay um and then in the 16th century uh you know the cities expanded outside their walled enclosures Uh into gardens especially in italy and you know explorers all over the world were bringing were bringing back plants uh europe was bringing in the tulips the fritillarias the hyacinths you know from the turkish empire Right, it was the age of discovery. Right, right, uh, which changed the floral, the you know the floral agriculture. Those flowers became appreciated for their ornamental virtues rather than their medicinal value. Uh-huh. Uh, so, in the 1570s, you have Basil Bessler, who did the most famous Hortus estinensis, which he was a Nuremberg apothecary uh, and botanist, and it was a curator of a garden of Prish, the Prince Bishop of Eichstadt, Germany, in well, Bavaria, really. And it was the only important uh, European garden outside of Italy at the time. And he was the first one to document all the plants in that particular garden or Florilegia. Florilegia. Right. right. So that's really where it started. You know, in uh, about 1570, uh, the Florilegia really became known for documenting a single body of plant life within Uh a garden. And now that's been reproduced like a billion times, right? Isn't the sunflower? Yes. I mean, Tashin has done it. Everybody knows. Yeah. You know, you know it. You can look it up. You know it. Right. It's very familiar. So in if you only get the proceeds from that, <laughs> I, I, well, not, <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, uh, a lot of artists try to, to, you know, recreate that style because it was so popular today. Yeah, you know, right. In in many forms, but 
1735, you have Linnaeus, who, you know, systemizing the classification of plants, uh-huh. which was really helpful in terms of, um, you know, providing the generic and the specific names of the plants. Uh, and, you know, here is where we, we really start, artists started to document every aspect of the plant. You know, the, the show all parts of it, including the flower, the fruit, the leaf, the stalk, the seed. You know, it was really... The death the, of it. The, everything. Yeah, the, right, you know, the yeah. evolution of the plant from beginning to end. And it right. was really that focus, that scientific focus that really took hold. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and then around that time, too, it was, you know, you looked at Fran- France. In France, you had, you know, the, an aesthetic movement with Redoute. Right. The complete opposite. He wasn't looking at the scientific. He appreciated it. He did not look at it. He looked at beauty, full full on right. beauty. You know, he was hired by Josephine right. uh, and Napoleon to illustrate all the flowers that grew in the gardens at Malmaison. Uh-huh. And he did the Liliaceae, 486 variations of the lily at the time, what they thought to be the variations of the lily. And then he did the roses, uh-huh. um, which were also extremely you know, popular today. They're extremely popular. Yeah, I, I want to talk with you uh, we're going to have to take a break in a minute, and I want you to finish up this history, but the uh, the idea of the print in in the botanical art world, because you can't really talk about botanical art without, unfortunately, talking about the print, even though I think I'm more interested, as, as we all are, in the original. Uh, but but I'm sorry to digress. Let's yeah, finish up the Yeah, you told me five history. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Uh, the, classica- the, the classification of regional flora started to take hold specifically in England. And most of the English and other nationalities had their foothold in classification at that time. And they really sort of started to look regionally at their gardens and understand what could grow in their region. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's when lithography came about and, the, and more of the, uh, the spread of, of, botanic, of, of botanicals uh-huh. and the print. Uh-huh. And it's in the 19th century and in the Victorian era. Right. right. So that's where I'm going to leave it. Okay. Let's take a break. <laughs> we'll be back with We Dig Plants. Public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 2.30 p.m., tune into Cutting the Curd with Ann Saxelby. And if there's one thing Ann Saxelby knows, it's cheese. Cutting the Curd finds Ann disseminating that dairy know-how to the listening public. Every episode also includes guests from the world of dairy, ranging from historians to farmers, chefs to cheesemongers, all engaging in dairy discourse so that you might gain a better understanding of this thing we call cheese. Again, that's every Sunday at 2.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, and welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, that background music 
Um, that was a little stereo lab. Ah, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to We Dig Plants. Uh, we have Sue Fry Nathan and Carol Wooden with us talking about botanical art, the history of botanical art, um, the commerce of botanical art. And Sue, I want you to continue a little bit with picking up uh, where we were speaking about uh, before the break, the 19th century and lithography, and where did it go from there? Well, in America, there was the nurseryman's catalog where they sold the seed plant illustrate. There were seeds and they had those seed packets. And right. that was really what, those illustrations, the nurse, the, they were toted around from, from garden to garden trying yeah. to sell, you know. Uh, the salesman the, would carry these books of right. these illustrations they to like, show well, their, they were basically advertising pages, basically. Right. Yeah. It, you know, and, and basically all this information can be read in the, in one wonderful reference book by Blunt and Stern called The Art of Illustra- Botanical Illustration. And it's just, it covers all, the whole history of botanical art from beginning through to contemporary painting. And I think it's just a great resource if you're interested in learning more about the subject. Uh Uh-huh. For sure. And of course, we can't talk about botanical illustration and art without talking about the American Society of Botanical Artists and and how it got started. Carol, do you want to tell us a little bit about its origins and what, what it's doing today to promote and support the art form? Uh, well, it was founded, I think, in 1995, and at that time, I was convinced that I was one of about five botanical artists <laughs> in the world. You probably were. <laughs> it could have been. But um, people thought, I guess that there was a group that had been to the UK, and they have a society of botanical artists there, and they wanted to pattern it on their society a little bit, but our society is much different. We're open to anyone who wants to join, and... You know, I think it's uh, about 15, 16 years later, and we have over 1,200 members from the U.S. and 20-some-odd countries at any given, on any given year. Uh-huh. So the world has opened up sure. hugely. So um, anyone can join? You just have to show your work? I mean, you have to show a body of work? don't have to work? show any work. You don't have to be an artist. Um, anyone can join. By being a member, you know, you get to be in contact with all these other artists. We have a nice journal we put out, and we sponsor exhibitions. They're juried. Um, there are maybe three international exhibitions in any given year. Yeah, one of the uh, most recent exhibitions that you curated is called Losing Paradise. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. Well, uh, Losing Paradise is, uh, we had our artists, we told them about three years before the exhibition was juried that we wanted them to capture endangered and threatened plants. We had a, a, the criterion that they had to be listed somewhere, either by a state, the federal government, or an international listing organization. So the artists went out there and they, you know, they worked with scientists and horticulturists and conservation organizations and documented some of the rarest plants in the world. And we got entries from all over the world again. And the exhibition has traveled around the, the country. Yeah, and it's at Q, or it's going to Q? It's going to Q this summer. It okay. was at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington over, you know, up until December. Uh-huh. And it's uh, going to open in the U.K. in June. Great. Good. Yeah, there's a catalog available, too, right? And that can be purchased at the ASBA website? I yes, it can. Great. So who do you think is the audience? I'm going to put this out to both of you ladies. Who do you think is the audience for these exhibitions? I think, you know, it's artists. It's uh, gardeners. It's environmentalists. It's people who are concerned about the earth. Uh-huh. Who want to learn more about 
what they see now and what they won't see later. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that a lot of gardens are trying to, uh, you know, start florilegiums to document the flowers in their gardens, like the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, like Filoli in California, uh, like Prince Charles in, in uh, England and Highgrove right. Florilegium. And, and Highgrove, he's doing a florilegium to uh, sort of promote botanical painting, uh, bring awareness to this art form, but also to uh, reflect on the fact that a lot of these plants won't be around, perhaps, exactly. in, in 100 years or even 50 years. So yeah. it's sort of marking time you uh-huh. know, for pos- posterity purposes. I think it's very important that you know, we, we document them and we, we make note of them. Because and you have some commercial clients, is that right? So I do. Yeah. Which is great because that's kind of big business investing in in this art form. Yeah, for uh, the future. Prince Charles isn't the only one that can afford. That's uh, right. <laughs> Florally, <laughs> but most of my clients really yeah. are purchasing work for aesthetic purposes. Mm. Many of them are gardeners, or I have clients who have commissioned work because they've grown up with a certain tree in their backyard, and and now they live in a different part of the country and they want a piece of home. Right. So I've you know I've. I've done a lot of wonderful commissions right now. I'm working on a commission with a with an artist uh, of a bark of a, a rainbow eucalyptus bark painting uh-huh. in a very contemporary style. So which is an amazing things. plant, a yeah. beautiful tree. Isn't yeah. that in the Sutton Botanical as well? Oh, yeah, snow gum is in the snow. Oh, yeah, the snow gum is. But yeah, that yeah. was amazing. That that exhibition is only fifty four paintings of uh, over four hundred paintings in that. In a, it's the largest American botanical art collection. Uh huh. Uh, you know, and and uh, it was is meant to be that way. Isaac Sutton really is very interested in collecting botanicals from all over the world. Right. Well, that that goes along with his kind of corporate philosophy of um, he's investing in wind power. Right. So you know, he's obviously very interested in the environment and the future. So this is one other way of 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 kind of capturing that that notion. And the catalog does a good job of explaining that too. Yes, it does. And I think there's there's, I mean, we we have to really think about botanical art as for the future. It's not now; it's more for the future. And that's why I love in Isaac's show his daughter Norma. We included a piece of her. Um, a, a painting that she did because she was influenced by this. And, and, you know, this is a young girl who's finding her way, making decisions about her life. And she's surrounded with these botanical paintings and that doesn't go unnoticed. No, she was 13 years old when she did that. Yeah. Work. And it's a great, yeah, sweet it's actually painting. very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very sweet. And, uh, you know, that reminds me of how so much plant information, so much knowledge about how plants were used during different periods came from these herbals and from these botanicals. Am I right? I mean, and so, you know, there may be a time where, like we were saying, some of these plants are going to go the way of the dodo, you know, and we will only see them on paper. Well, yeah. vellum. We have, vellum. <laughs> well, we have a current exhibition coming up in April at the New York Botanical Garden sponsored by the ASBA, which is... Uh, green currency and Carol can you talk a little bit more about that since you're the really you're one behind it well the exhibition contains 43 artworks and they're all based on plants that are used in the economy oh cool so it's you know cotton and yeah bamboo we just did a whole we just did a whole series of shows on cotton on economic botany economic botany perfect so funny indigo we're on the same wavelength (laughs) this is going to be a juried this is a juried exhibition and it's going to be a medal exhibition it's the first medaled exhibition in America and it's going to be the medals will be given out by Shirley Sherwood be honored by Shirley Sherwood. So. Yeah, you've mentioned Shirley Sherwood. Can you a few times? Let's talk about her and 
Well, Dr. Shirley Sherwood. Yeah. Really, let's get her name right. Um, Let's let's tell our audience who she is. Well, she she is a botanist, first and foremost, and she is the most... She's the most prolific collector of contemporary botanical work in the world. She... uh, she has the largest collection of botanicals uh, in, Euro- in Europe, uh, and she built a building at Kew uh-huh. to honor her collection and to honor Kew's collection by having it uh, exhibited as, as often as possible to really get the public awareness out there and uh-huh. to make people aware of it. Yeah, and Isaac Sutton really is following in her shoes here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, he was inspired by her, yeah. her her collecting here. Right. When she had her show at the National Arts Club uh-huh. many years ago now in New York, he saw that show and said, I, I can do this. I can buy these things. Well, they're very accessible still. Uh-huh. You know, they're beautiful, original works of art that are still very undervalued for the for what they are because you know, because of the over-commercialization of botanicals, yeah. uh, unfortunately. And how many... Um, artists do you represent sue because you're you're repping these artists i represent 13 contemporary botanical painters from around the world Uh uh-huh uh scotland france america all over america uh and i'm always looking for new artists to represent and what i look for in in the artwork is you know great quality uh masterful technical ability i love crisp painting style carol wooded (laughs) Carol. <laughs> I do. I represent Carol. So yeah. it's very, very handy that she's here. And actually, one of the best paintings I ever sold, and I've been in been in business for myself for nine years, uh, was a Carol Wooden dried sunflower. It was dead, and it had the most life to it, and it was the most interesting. And it sort of it, you left thinking about it long after you saw it and i think that's the best that's art. the mark of a p- good yeah, of a painting. great great painting and, yeah. I, and i still think about that painting today carol could i get you tissue <laughs> <laughs> so that so we are we're sitting here i guess with a future old master then so is that i definitely think so <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, I, I, or a mistress i should say yeah I'm sorry <laughs> no she's she's a master painter definitely, she definitely sure. is yeah so I'm going to ask kind of the obvious question because we're living in a digital and photographic age, right? What, what you know, why, why botanical painting? Why not, uh, you know, the camera can now capture um, images at, at very fine, minute detail. Why, why botanical painting? Why does it matter today when we can do it digitally? We can capture it very, very finely. It's a, it's a completely different thing. Um, yeah, top of the you may catch you may capture the technical details and you may capture some of the aesthetics too but the individual eye of the artist and the the, the deep hand. aestheticism that an artist can bring to a painting or a drawing is it's just not comparable to photography and the other thing about um, botanical art is that we know that artworks are going to last for hundreds of years if they're done right. Whereas we do believe we're going to be able to keep translating our digital information, but you never know what might happen 100, 200, 300 years from now. Right. That's right. They're so, just really guessing as to how long it will last in, in good shape. Right, Sue? Yeah. I, you know, botanical painting... In its in its real life form, when the, when the artists are working in the field and they're capturing it from the real life and they're taking it off out of their 
out of the elements and they're putting it in their in their studios and they're trying to keep it alive within you know hours of it dying and trying to capture the capture the color it's such a fleeting time it's such an exciting time for them they take you know they mark this period with color records to make sure that they get the exact coloration at the time that it's alive because as it's as it's in their studio it's, it's dying fading, it's right. fading so you know it's really a remarkable uh you know, moment in time for these artists, which I, which they capture, and they have this ability to get so close to nature and to receive this information from nature before it, before it's no longer there. Uh, I don't, I don't know if, if photography can capture it the same way. Right. I don't think so. I, I, you know, it's, it's this relationship that the artist has with the planet, this one moment, and the information it receives, it's just like nothing else. And I think that's what. The, the power that comes from that painting comes partly from that relationship. Yeah, and I think that also goes back to the idea of a print also and, and what's lost in a print. Yeah, let's talk a little botanical. bit about that. I'm the sort of um, novice in the room of all three of you. What is lost in the print? Well, I think, unfortunately, you know, prints, the over-commercialization of botanicals, you know, when you go into a hotel or you go into an office building or a hospital, bank. you see you yeah. see a bank, you see botanicals everywhere you go and you think, oh, that's a wonderful, it's a pretty that's painting. That's a pretty picture. But you're not really understanding the the process. You're just looking at the picture. When I, I have a website and on my website I have watercolor on paper. It describes everything in detail of what the original is. And I get calls all the time saying, how much is that print? Thinking it's $50 and we'll move on. Well, <laughs> you know, I only sell things that are, you know, starting at $1,000 up to, you know, $30,000. Right. And, you know, it's a very different association. It's a different, different understanding of what fine art is. I'm a contemporary fine art dealer. I deal in, you know, it happens to be the subject matter of botanicals. But it's fine art, and it's uh, it's one of a kind. There's, uh, they're all originals. But also, just in the process of, of printing a print, things are lost. You don't get that fineness. You you don't get that color. You know, the color can be adjusted digitally, but that doesn't make it right. There's not a dimensional you know? quality exactly. to it, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, and it's, you know... Even the antique prints, who are wonderful, which are wonderful, the hand painted antique right. prints, right? There, there's been copies of them made, so that beautiful engraved quality is just under under underappreciated, just not understood. Right? Yeah. Alice and I recently were at the New York Botanic Garden, and we had a little private tour with the one of the librarians, um, and I had a list of things I wanted to see because I'd seen certain um, you know books reproduced. Um, in other books, but it was and, wonderful and I, to see the real thing. You know, in the scale, I think it was Bateman. Bateman, yeah, it was the his one of his. Yeah, that's so I was, like, I want Bateman. Yeah. I want to see Bateman. Yeah, well, that's so. a double elephant's folio size book. That's one yeah. of the only one of its kind. Yeah, yeah. printed. Yeah, and there it is at New York Botanic Garden, and right. you could go and see it. It was and like a two person, two people to yeah. to carry it. It was amazing. So I know what you're saying, Sue, about that that seeing the paper. You know, and, and like, you know, he was touching it and turning the pages. I was like standing like, you know, three feet away because I was like, I don't even want to think about possibly sneezing on this, you know. You know, there's a gorgeous saturation of color with original works. Uh-huh. There's, yeah. you know, with vellum, the color and the translucency come partly from light because uh-huh. of the skin. Uh-huh. Uh, with paper, it comes from the application of paint and, uh-huh. and uh, you know, whites and, and, and the negative space and, it's, there's just nothing like seeing an original and, and understanding and appreciating an original. And that's a whole nother story. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'd like to see, um, Carol, some of your studies even, you know, some of your field studies. I think those can be just as exciting as the finished product painting. You know, I'm always very interested in the process of things. Sometimes there's a greater immediacy to yeah. the studies. Yeah. Um, sometimes my studies look really terrible because I get mud on them and they get all banged up. Right. And, and you're but, working so quickly. Right? Yeah. And I'm doing them for my own memorization process. Uh-huh. They're not done for uh, final right. work. So they mean something to me, but some other person may look at them and say, ah, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is the future for this um, industry and, and where, where do you think it's going I think there's a renaissance right now with all the legumes sprouting up around the world and more and more botanical artists joining, you know, the ASBA. Uh, I, I can only see it going, exploding. You know, there is no, currently, there's a very small, let's just say, secondary market for botanicals, but I see, uh, contemporary botanical painting, but I see over time there being a strong secondary market for contemporary botanical work uh, with, you know, it, with people like Carol and Kate Nessler and Lizzie Sanders, uh, people who are you know very strong and committed to the to the art form and working it working on it forever, their whole lives dedicated to it. There's only there's 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 so many possibilities for it to be in great museums, hanging along next side aside aside the Durers and and the Leonardo da Vinci's. It, they should be there because they're at a, of the same quality. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the oh. integrity of the, of the work. <laughs> well, I would second that for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you folks want to add anything else? Any links or websites you'd like to mention to well, our we're audience? Gonna, yeah, we're going to post. Um, Carol gave me her website, and then we'll post to uh, Sue's website as well. Um, and then some links as to the Losing Paradise show that we spoke about earlier okay. and Isaac Sutton show right. at New York. When is that coming down, Sue? It's coming down on March 29th. Okay, so it's at NYBG. Until March 29th. Okay, great. Right. And then it, it is traveling, so... It is traveling. It will be at the Woodson Art Museum in Wisconsin. And we have other places that we're hoping to get it into, and it will definitely end up at Kew Gardens yeah. in London. Yeah, in in uh, 2013. Yeah. Well, I just want to add too that um, Q is an amazing resource, and actually their website on plants um, showcases a lot of artwork as well, um, historical artwork relating to plants. You know, whether it's drawings and um, and photographs, they have an amazing collection, and you should definitely check out their website. Alice and I will also put a link to that because we use it as a resource as well all the time as we're researching topics for shows. They're just you know, a wealth of information. They have uh, an exhibition calendar for, uh-huh. for Shirley Sherwood's building. Uh-huh. So you can constantly see what's what's going on up there. Right. So, And all of her work is contemporary that she's collecting. All of her work is contemporary, but they do have, a, you know, an important repository of antique work at Q. Sure. So they posit it from, uh, alongside her work. Yeah. And make connections and themes all the time with her work. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and shedding some light on this very old and very important art form. And uh, we're happy to have had you to demystify some of it for us. (laughs) Well, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Alice and Carmen. (laughs) Uh, Well, I would like to thank Jack Inslee for producing and engineering the show. Thank you to Roberta's Pizza and to our show sponsor, Whole Foods. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Gardens. We dig plants. And on Twitter, we dig plants. Um, The show is also going to be archived via the Heritage Radio Network website and iTunes. We'll see you in the garden. Happy gardening. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. 
You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Boltley of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.